0: O almighty God, who has compassed us about with so great a cloud of witnesses, grant that we, encouraged by the good example of thy servant Timothy, may persevere in running the race that is set before us, until at length, through thy mercy, we may with him attain to thine eternal joy. Through Jesus Christ, the author and perfecter of our faith, who liveth and reigneth with thee in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen. Somebody asked me. This morning, if I was going to be preaching on Reformation Sunday, this is Reformation Sunday, 500 years, and I'm not, um, I figured the Reformers would prefer for me just to preach the Gospel this morning. So, that's what we're going to do today as we turn to 2 Timothy, uh, chapter 3. If you have your Bibles, I encourage you to open them up to 2 Timothy, chapter 3. If you don't have a Bible... Let me know after class, and I'll make sure you have one for next week. Um, But I do encourage you to bring your Bibles along. There's that wonderful collect. I'm just going to keep saying it until you you do it. Um, But 2 Timothy chapter 3 um, is a wonderful section about the Word of God and the power of God and the the necessity of of the Word of God. And so I just want to encourage you to do that. The old collect in the prayer book says, Grant that we may so read, mark, learn, and inwardly digest thy holy word, Um, and I think that's what we need to do. We have to read it, we have to mark it, learn it, and inwardly digest it. And What we discover is that it brings about a transformation in our life. Now, some people have said, well, you know, sometimes you read the Bible and it's difficult. Well, how many of you have ever read the Bible and found something difficult in it? Sure, there are many things in the Bible that are difficult to understand. There are some things that are difficult for us to accept. But I submit to you, it's like taking an aspirin. You know, uh, when you've got a headache or any other kind of bodily ache, you can go to the medicine cabinet and you take an aspirin. What's the worst thing you can do when you take an aspirin? Chew it. <laughs> don't chew the aspirin. Uh, if you do, it's a very bitter tasting pill. You swallow it whole. And lo and behold, you discover when you swallow it whole, transformation. Same is true with the scripture. Swallow them whole, Trust that this is the word of the Lord, and you will discover that it will work a miracle in your life. Well, let's turn now to 2 Timothy chapter 3. And we're going to go ahead and read through the first nine verses of a remarkable but challenging section of this epistle that we've been studying. Paul writes, But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. Avoid such people, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions, always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Yambres opposed Moses, so these men also opposed the truth. Men corrupted in mind and disqualified regarding the faith, but they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all, as it was of those two men. Now let's just remember what this epistle is all about. Paul is imprisoned in Rome at the time that he wrote this letter. He was awaiting trial and execution. Paul had been imprisoned in Rome on another occasion, but it had been house arrest. That's not the case this time. On this particular occasion, Paul is awaiting trial and execution. And he's going to be executed. In a very short while, by the order of the emperor, Nero himself, Paul would be taken out along the Appian Way, which was the main thoroughfare, coming in and going out of Rome. It was always to be a public spectacle. Crucifixions, any kind of capital punishment, was carried out in some public place. In much the same way that uh, Steed Bonnet, the pirate, was hanged here in Charleston. Where? At White Point Garden. So that he was a spectacle for anybody else. As a solemn warning. And that's exactly what was going to happen to Paul. And he knew that. And he knew that the church was under assault. He knew there were all kinds of mystery religions that were appearing on the scene that were competing with the Christian faith. He realized that because there was this systematic purge of the church taking place at that very moment, many people were growing cold, many people were abandoning the faith. And what worried Paul most was the fact that he was not going to be there to be a great contender for the gospel. He was going to have to pass on his ministry to somebody else. And he was passing it on to this young man, Timothy. And we said that Timothy couldn't have been more different from Paul if he tried. He was young. Paul was in the late afternoon of his glory. He appears to be weak and sickly. Paul had the constitution of an ox. He was timid and shy and introvert. Paul was anything but an introvert. He was probably a raging extrovert. They were very different. And yet this was God's chosen instrument. And so this letter was written what? This letter was written to encourage Timothy and to prepare Timothy. It's the very last letter that we are aware of that the Apostle Paul wrote. Some have described it as his last will and testament. And so what he wants to do is he he wants to prepare his young protégé, who is pastoring the church in Ephesus, to be prepared to step into his shoes. Paul is absolutely convinced that to be forewarned, is to be forearmed. Because he knows that the task before Timothy is going to be very difficult indeed. In fact, in this section he says, but understand this, that in the last day there will come times of difficulty. Do you ever take a look at the world around us and think we're living in times of difficulty? How many of you think that? Well, we may be shocked, but as Paul's going to explain to Timothy, we should not be surprised. As a matter of fact, all of this was foretold beforehand. To be forewarned is to be forearmed. Now what I find particularly interesting about this section, 2 Timothy chapter 3, is the way Paul begins it. He's very emphatic as he warns Timothy. He's been talking about being a vessel, a choice vessel used for God. But now he's, he wants to warn Timothy of the difficulty that he's going to face. Being a follower of Jesus Christ in the first century and being a follower of Jesus Christ in the 21st century is not an easy thing. Now, so many of us have grown up in a nominally Christian environment. So we're a little surprised by the things that are happening in our world and even in our country in terms of the pressure that's being brought against the Christian church. Paul did not want Timothy to be surprised, and if the truth be known, he does not want us to be surprised at all. And that's why he begins very emphatically with these words But understand this. You have to ask yourself, don't you think Timothy understood it already? He was receiving this letter from where? From a jail cell. This was a prison epistle. You don't think Timothy understood that there would become times of difficulty? And yet Paul is very emphatic here. Again, it's one thing to be shocked, it's another thing to be surprised. He says, I want you to understand that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. Why is Paul so emphatic? Because I think he wants Timothy to realize that these times of difficulty are not a passing thing. It's not a temporary affliction that Timothy is going to experience. This is going to be part and parcel of living in the last days. The times of difficulty are not a passing thing. You know, sometimes that's what we say. When somebody comes up and they're having a rough time, or sometimes when we're having a rough time and somebody's having pity on us, what do we say? Oh, well, this too shall pass. You ever hear people say that sort of thing? I hate that. This too shall pass. Well, sure, like a kidney stone maybe. I mean, it's painful, it's uncomfortable, it's miserable. But Paul is telling Timothy, this too will not pass. The times of difficulty are not going to be a passing fancy. The times of difficulty are going to be a permanent condition. He uses the expression the last days, but understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. What does Paul mean by the last days? And every time the new year comes around, you're going through the checkout line at the Piggly Wiggly or the Harris Teeter or the Publix or whatever it is, wherever you shop. Are there any Piggly Wigglies around? Yeah, No, they're all gone. Well, nobody's sticking with the pig anymore, but in those, if you used to, wherever you go to the grocery stores, you're going through the checkout line. What, what do you see? You see all these tabloids, and normally at the end of the year, right before the new year turns, there are all these prophecies. You know, the prophecies of Nostradamus or Gene Dixon or whatever it is. All these prophecies that are going to be fulfilled in the coming year. People are fascinated with the future, aren't they? And they're fascinated with the prospect of the end times. And many people look at what's happening in the world today and they think, oh, I think we're at the end of the end times and and the Lord's going to come back any day. Well, it may very well be the case that the Lord is going to come back any day. But I always find it fascinating that people, people who claim to be Christians, start pointing out and saying, oh, I think it's going to happen on this date or it's going to happen in this year or this month or whatever it is, in spite of the fact that Jesus himself said he didn't know when it was going to happen. He said only the Father knows. I want you to understand, when the New Testament talks about the last days, it's not talking about those final moments just before the Lord's return in glory. It's talking about a whole swath of history. The end times, according to the New Testament, is that whole period of time between the Lord's ascension and His return in glory, however long that period may be. If you want to sort of picture history... As the Bible pictures history, you can put it into three segments. The first segment is from the creation and the fall up to the coming of the Savior, what we would call the Old Testament period. That's the first segment of history, from the creation the whole way up to the advent of the Messiah. That's the first swath of history, and it's a pretty lengthy period. In fact, it was so long that when the Messiah, who was promised, actually showed up on the scene, nobody recognized him. Did you notice that? He came to that which was his own, but his own received him not. Where was Jesus born? He was king of kings and lord of lords, but where was he born? Bethlehem. In Bethlehem. In a, in a little town. We, we sing, oh, little town of Bethlehem. But the reality was, Bethlehem was just a backwater in those days. And where was Jesus born? In a palace? No, he was born where? Where? in a stable, in a cattle shed, and don't have these sanitized pictures of sweet-smelling hay and cattle (laughs) gently lowing. Let me tell you, if you've ever been in a barn, you know what it smells like, you know what it looks like. It is not a pretty, it is not a sanitary picture. That's where Jesus, the Savior of the world, the Prince of Peace, the creator of the heavens and the earth was born. Why? Because it seemed so long that the Messiah had tarried that when he finally showed up, nobody recognized. That's the first segment of history. Second segment of history is that period from when the Messiah arrives, his birth in Bethlehem, until he ascends into glory, which is a relatively short period of time. What? 33 years or so. And he was only active for three of those that we know of. So that's a relatively brief period of time. How many of you can remember events from 33 years ago? You may be able to remember those better than you can remember what happened yesterday. Sometimes that's the case, isn't it? That's a relatively brief period of time. And the Bible says there's that third period of time. And that's the period between the Lord's return to the Father and his coming again in glory. How long will that period be? We don't know. Any more than the people in the Old Testament period knew how long it would be until he came the first time. We don't know, all we do know is that we're living in the last days. And that it can happen at any moment. So when Paul says there will come times of difficulty in the last days, what is he saying? He's saying I'm not describing a future period, I'm describing what? A present reality. That's what Paul is describing my friends. He was living in the last day. Timothy was living in the last days. That last period of time, and so are we. Now, we're further along down. Are we in the very last of the last days? I don't know. Could be. Jesus could come back at any moment. But the reality is we are living in the last days, and Paul is emphatic. Understand this. In the last days, there will come times of difficulty. Let me tell you, if you are disturbed by what's happening out there in the world today, That's understandable, but you should not be surprised by this. In fact, when I went to bed last night, you know, one of the worst things you can do is read Facebook before you go to bed. I just, I do not recommend it. And the last thing I did right before I went to bed was look on Facebook. That was prior to saying my prayers, of course, you know, I mean, but. I looked on there and I saw where Christ Church in Alexandria, Virginia had decided to remove its memorial to George Washington because they found that offensive. And I thought, well, we're gonna have a society of the Cincinnati day in Charleston, (laughs) just wait. And I was disturbed by that. I was disturbed to see the nation's history being purged away. One of the great lessons that is read on All Saints Day, comes from the Apocrypha, but it's read, and it begins, let us now praise Famous man. I thought, well, they're not going to be able to use that lesson on All Saints Day on Wednesday, are they? That's disturbing to me. And yet, as disturbing as it is, I went to bed and I was talking to the Lord and I said, I shouldn't be surprised by this. For Paul says, understand that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. Now, he says times of difficulty. Uh, Some translations put it, Seasons of difficulty. This is Paul's way of saying that that doesn't mean that in the end times it's just going to be one continuous battle. He's saying there will be seasons, there will be times of difficulty, which is to say there will be moments in the Christian life when it's smooth sailing. He said, but there will also be times in the Christian life when there will be storms. And you feel as though your little vessel's about to be engulfed, swallowed whole. And what he wants us to understand is that this is what we can expect in the last days. Times of smooth sailing, but also times of difficulty. Do not ever be lulled into a false sense of security in the last days. The things are always going to be easy. They're going to be storms. Now, the storms are not going to last forever. They're going to be times when the storms abate. But as somebody has said, we must understand that we are all in one of three places. We are all either going into a storm, we are in a storm, or we have just come out of a storm. And if you think about it, that's true of human life, isn't it? You're either going into a storm sooner or later, or you're in the midst of a storm. Some of you are, I know that. Or you've just come out of a storm. But Paul says, understand, in the last days, this is the way it's going to be. Difficult times. Now you have to ask yourself, why is that the case? Why is it going to be difficult? Why is there going to be the appearance of an increase of wickedness in the world? You see, Paul is warning Timothy so that Timothy can be ready. He's warning us so that you and I can be ready. In in times of difficulty, the worst thing that we can do as Christians is to sort of ball up in a hole. In times of difficulty, we have to be willing to stand up. We need to be able to take our stand for the gospel, to speak the truth, but to always speak the truth in love. And you can do that a whole lot easier if you realize that there will be opposition. Why are there difficult times? Because, Paul says, of wicked people. Why is the world wicked? You know, we have a tendency to think that it's the big bad world out there. We have a tendency to think that the world is wicked and it corrupts people. Isn't that what we think? Let me tell you, that's not what the scripture teaches. The scripture teaches that the world was created good. The world is corrupt. The world is evil. The world is wicked. Why? Because of people because of human beings. That's why the world is corrupt and wicked. Keep your finger there in Second Timothy and turn back for a moment to the book of Genesis. I want you to take a look at Genesis chapter one. And we'll just begin at verse 24. And God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures according to their kinds, livestock and creeping things, and the beasts of the earth according to their kinds. And it was so. And God made the beasts of the earth according to their kinds, and the livestock according to their kinds, and everything that creeps on the ground according to its kind. And God saw that it was good. It was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image, after our likeness, and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the heavens, and over the livestock, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps upon the earth. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God he created him. Male and female he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth, and what? Subdue it have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that creeps upon the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And it goes on and on. And we're told in verse 31, God saw everything that he had made and behold, it was, it was very good. So God creates things, and it's good, it's good, it's good, everything. And when he gets to man, and he creates man, he gives man dominion over the world. Man is meant to be God's regent, reigning over the creation. What a wonderful position. Now, of course, we all know man was not satisfied with being number two. He wanted to be number one, didn't he? Well, what a position. You are regent. I'm giving you all of this, all of the world. It's all yours. Your job is to reign over it, to subdue it, to protect it, to extend the blessings of Eden to the whole of creation. What a wonderful, wonderful task that is. What a high calling. To be God's prime minister. But is that the world we have inherited? Look at Romans chapter 8. Of God, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. The creation that was made good, that man was given to reign over, to subdue, and to protect, and to extend the blessings of Eden to, it is that creation that when you get to Romans 8 is what? Moaning and groaning as in childbirth, longing for redemption. Why? Well, the obvious answer is the fall. Mankind turned away from God. Mankind was not satisfied with the number two position. The serpent came to Eve and said, eat of that tree. Look at that tree over there in the midst of the garden. And what was Eve's response? She said, no. God has said that if we even touch of that tree, we will die. And the serpent said, ah, but you will not die. If you eat of that tree, you will what? You'll be like God. Ah, you see, you could be number one. It's only one thing that counts, Eve, and that's being number one. And so as a desire to be God, not to be satisfied with the high position that she had, she ate of the tree, and she fell. And when she fell, all of creation fell with her. Now, some people have suggested that that meant that there was a change in the created order. No-seams and sand gnats came about as a consequence of the fall, for example. I remember one of my children had a stomach bug one day, and um, he wasn't feeling well, and I said, son, it's going to be all right. He says, I am so mad at Adam. (laughs) And I, I, I was slow on the uptake. I'm like, Adam who? We tend to think that that's what happened. When the fall occurred, the created order changed. But I don't think that's what Paul is talking about in Romans chapter 8. I think what Paul says is that when mankind fell, mankind failed to carry out his God-given task of being a regent over creation. And instead of subduing, abused the world. And the creation will never be fully restored until the sons of God are doing their job as they were intended to do. And if you just think about this, you don't have to be one of those tree huggers in order to recognize what's happened in the world. God created something beautiful. But there was a sense in which it was untamed, isn't it? If you don't think that that's what Genesis is teaching, just think about it. We're told that God created the heavens and the earth, and then he took man and put him in a what? In a garden. A garden is a what? It's a tamed area, isn't it? That's that's what a garden is. What happens if you don't care for a garden? It grows wild. (laughs) It ceases to be a garden. So one way of looking at that is to say that God created a magnificent thing. And man was called upon to bring order. To subdue it. But man didn't. Man abused the creation and not just the created order in the terms of nature, but man has abused himself, abused his fellow creatures, the animals, and most of all other human beings, taking their lives and having no regard for them. My friends, if the creation is moaning as in travail, It's not because something went wrong with the world, it's because something went wrong with us. You wanna know why the world is wicked today? We might as well fess up. We're never gonna be able to resolve the problem until we realize that the problem is in us. So often we think the problem is out there. That's what we want to do. We wanna play the blame game. It's as old as creation itself. Adam, what have you done? Did you eat of the tree that I told you not to eat of? The woman thou gavest me. Eve, what is it that you have done? The serpent beguiled me. God turns to the serpent, what is it that you have done? And you know the old joke, the serpent didn't have a leg to stand on. (laughs) Look at Mark chapter 7. Jesus is very clear about this. Mark chapter 7, verse 14. And he called the people to him again and said to them, Hear me, all of you, and understand. Isn't it interesting? It's the same kind of language that Paul uses. Very emphatic. I want you to understand this, Timothy. In the last days will come times of difficulty. Jesus calls the people to him, and he speaks emphatically. He says, understand. Understand what? There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Verse 21, For from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come with, from within, and they defile a person. The problem is not out there in the world, my friends. The problem is within our own hearts. If that weren't the case, there would be no need for a savior. Now I'll go back to 2 Timothy chapter 3. So Paul is very clear. There are going to be difficult times in the last days. We're living in the last days. There'll be periods of relative peace, but then there'll be times when there are storms. And you have to be prepared for both over the course of the Christian life. He says this is all going to be the result of what? Evil people. Now the question is, why are people evil? Well, we've already seen it's because of the fall. But the main reason is because they have a misplaced love. Look again at what Paul says to Timothy. But understand this, that in the last days there will come times of difficulty. Why? Because people will be lovers of self. Because people will be lovers of self rather than lovers of God. What is the great commandment? You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength. You shall love God. That's the first commandment. Yes. Well, that's true. The first commandment is to yes, to have sex actually, but I when consider the of the the Well, yes, and we're going to get to that, but hang in there. But really, the first of the 10 commandments is what? You shall love the Lord your God. I mean, that, that's one of the tragedies. When, when Moses comes down off the mountain to give the law to the people, what does he find them doing? Worshiping the golden calf. Before he even gives them the law, they've broken it. That's why he throws the tablets down. They symbol, they're symbolic of the fact that they'd already broken the law. And that's what Paul is saying. He said the problem here is that people, the world is wicked because people are lovers of self rather than lovers of God. And throughout history, people have always recognized the danger of this. You, no doubt, know the story of Narcissus from ancient Greek mythology, the man who was lured to the stream or to the pond. He was so handsome, and he looked in there, and he saw his own reflection, and he did what? He fell in love with himself. He could not tear himself away. So that in the end, the Greek cautionary tale was he what? He perished for love of self. You think that was a problem only for the Greeks? Oh, what do we call that? A selfie, and we even have selfie sticks. I'm not gonna ask if you happen to have a selfie stick. The whole purpose of which is what? To take a photograph of your self so that you can put it on Facebook or Instagram. See, the problem is old. It's, it's nothing new. We, we still have this problem. And it all goes back to that first moment when the tempter came along and whispered in Eve's ear, ah, ah, but you can be like God. You can be number one. Back in 1967, Beatles published an album entitled, All You Need Is Love. You know the song? All you need is love. Um, all you need is love. They, I think they sing that for like six minutes straight. That's basically the only thing that the song says, is all you need is love. That sounds wonderful, doesn't it? All you need is love. But the question is, love of what? It is not true that all you need is love. Narcissus had love. The problem was he had love of self. And that's what Paul is saying. The world is in a terrible state today, and it's going to be difficult for Christians, and it is because people may have love. It's not a lack of love out there in the world, my friends. The Beatles got it wrong. Sorry. Maybe good music, bad theology. The problem is not a lack of love. The problem is a mis Placed love. It is a love of self. And this misdirected love of self leads to all other kinds of problems that leave our world in a terrible state. For people will be lovers of self. And if you're a lover of self, what does that lead to? The love of money. We are living in the most materialistic culture in history. We have access to everything and to anything, and we have it at the click of a button. It's called Amazon, and it comes right to your door. Those ladies are out there in London at Selfridges and so forth, shopping around. But you don't have to go out to Selfridges now. You can click a button, and whatever you want, your heart's desire, can be delivered to your doorstep. And if you've got Amazon Prime, we can get it to you in 24 hours. (laughs) And the whole purpose of loving money is to do what? Get stuff for yourself. And people will do anything. For money. Make no mistake about it. Now some people like to say, well, that's why the Bible says money is the root of all evil. Did you know that's not what the Bible says? What does the Bible say? The love love of money. It's not money. Money is a tool. It can be. And yet there's no doubt about the fact that Jesus warns us. Over and over again in the New Testament, Jesus talked about money more than almost any other subject, my friends. Because he says money is a true mirror of what's going on in the heart. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus told a story. A story about a farmer who had a bumper crop. He had a huge crop, wonderful harvest. And this farmer said to himself, I will tear down my barns and build bigger ones. And then I will sit back and I will take my ease. And I will think to myself, soul, you have much stored up for years. Relax, take it easy, eat, drink, and be merry. And Jesus said that man was a fool. Why? Because he didn't realize that his life was going to be demanded of him that very night. Jesus said it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of heaven. You know why money is so dangerous as a spiritual liability? Because it gives us a false sense of security. Just with that foolish farmer, he thought that he had enough, that he was secure, and so he was placing his hope and his confidence in what? In the things of this earth, all of which pass away. When you die, how much are you gonna leave behind? All of it. You're gonna leave it all behind, my friends. So the question is, how are you using it today? Do you control your money, or does your money control you? And if you're wondering about this, if you're wondering about this, and I'm not trying to put guilt on anybody this morning. You're probably gonna feel guilty when I say this, but that's not my intention. Go back through and look at your checkbook. Go back through, look at your credit card statements. Look at how much you spend on other things in comparison to what you spend on God. And you'll get a picture of what controls your life. Of course, everybody's in different situations. I I don't know. This will be a consolation to you. I don't know what anybody gives. And I want to know what anybody gives. But I don't know what people give here at St. Philip's. But what I am saying is that, you know, there may be different circumstances. You know, we talk about tithing. Do you know that that's the Old Testament standard, tithing? 10%. You know what the New Testament standard is? Everything. Everything. God owns it all. We go to a restaurant, we give 20% as a tip. 10%, you're not even tipping God. You control your money, does your money control you? Lovers of self, well, it always leads to love of money. Paul goes on, love of money, then leads to people being proud, arrogant, and abusive. Muhammad Ali once said, it's hard to be humble when you're as great as I am. Sometimes that's the way we feel, isn't it? Contrast the example of the great one That's what they called Muhammad Ali, but the truly great one. Who did not even have a place to lay his head. On the night before he was betrayed, got down on his hands and knees, and on the night he was betrayed, and washed his disciples' feet. Lovers of self leads to lovers of money. Lovers of money become proud, arrogant, abusive. And then you begin to see that this wicked cancer that is beginning to eat through society begins to make its way into the family. You see the destruction of the home and the family. And why is that so dangerous? Well, I'll tell you, because the family, you see, is the foundation for society. As the family goes, as marriages go, so go society. It's a proven historical fact. I think that's one of the reasons why the devil is targeting families today. The divorce rate is higher than ever before. Because their parents are lovers of self, lovers of money, and proud and sometimes arrogant and abusive, what happens? They become disobedient to their parents. Violation of the fifth commandment. Honor thy father and thy mother. We're told they become ungrateful, children who are not satisfied with the sacrifices that their parents have made for them. How many people I have known from the greatest generation who went out and they stood in bread lines, then they fought in World War II and saved the nation, pulled us out of the bread lines, and then in the 1950s what did they say? My children will have it better than I do. How many of you have ever said that? My children are going to have it better than I do. And how many of you would agree that your children had it better than you did? It's almost always the case, isn't it? That our children have it better than we do. But what started off as a privilege, I'm going to send you to to college and it's going to be a privilege, has suddenly become what? An entitlement. It's no longer a privilege. I'm entitled to this. You owe that to me. You see, they become ungrateful. You see that happening in the world? How many of you see that happening in the world today? My goodness, you better believe it. They become unholy. What does it mean to be unholy? It basically means that you have no sense that there is a God above. You are shameless. There's there's no sense of decorum. You're shameless. They become heartless. Lacking in compassion for one another. Oh, my goodness. The teen suicide rate in America. I can tell you, when I was growing up, and I went to a public high school, in all the years that I went through, 12 years of public education, I don't remember a single person ever committing suicide. And I've discovered that more and more it seems to happen, and it oftentimes happens in affluent circles. Because all the money, all the possessions, all of that sort of thing cannot truly satisfy. It leaves a person begging for more. And here's what it says. In the end, they become unappeasable. What does that mean? Dissatisfied. They're dissatisfied. Nothing makes them happy. Try as you might. Throw as much stuff at them as you possibly can. And they're not satisfied. Now, I'm not here to pick upon young people. The young people are the way they are. Why, Paul says? Because of their parents. Because their parents were lovers of self rather than lovers of God. They become unappeasable. This was the cover of Time magazine. The me, me, me generation. Millennials are lazy, entitled narcissists who still live with their parents. Why? Wow, they'll save us all. Well, that remains to be seen, doesn't it? Can lazy narcissists save us all? See this downhill spiral that Paul is talking about? You see that the family is under fire. And when the family is under fire, it's not long before you see the destruction of society as a whole. And that's what Paul goes on to talk about now. Let's see if I can get through it in two minutes. What happens next? He says they become slanderous. Slanderous is the next thing on the list, slanderous. It's interesting, the Greek word is diaboloi, from which we get diabolos, meaning what? The devil, diabolical, devilish. They become slanderous, they begin to tell lies. See, that's what the devil did when he came to Eve, wasn't it? He told a lie, whispered in her ear. She could be like God, and it was a lie. Without self-control is the next expression. Lacking in self-control. The Greek there literally means incontinent. Not being able to control their bodies. If it feels good, do it. That's the only thing that matters in an Epicurean society. If it feels good, do it. If it feels bad, avoid it. They become what? Brutal. Actually, the Greek means brutish, fierce, animal-like. Ever see people out there acting like animals? That that screenshot that I had up that said difficult times at the beginning showed all of those people out there rioting in Washington, D.C. on Inauguration Day. Let me tell you, they look like animals. Regardless of who was elected, It was animal-like behavior, not loving goodness. Goodness is one of the fruits of the Spirit. They don't just lack goodness. They have no real regard for the good. In fact, they don't believe there are any objective categories of truth, beauty. There's just whatever you regard to be good. What's good for you? They are treacherous. It's interesting to note that the word that is translated treacherous here is the same word that was used to describe Judas Iscariot in Luke's gospel. They're reckless. What does it mean to be reckless? It means that you don't consider the consequences. Is there a whole generation out there that do not consider the consequences? Part of the reason they don't consider the consequences is because there's always somebody to bail them out, isn't there? Finally, they are what? Swollen with conceit. We called that person a swelled head. I'm the center of the universe. It's all about me. I want to get my way. Folks, a person with just one or two of these traits can be difficult to live with. If the person has many or all of them, that is ruinous for society. And when society goes, you eventually see the destruction of faith. We're seeing that in Western culture now. In fact, we redefine sin. Sin now becomes something that is sinfully delicious. Chocolate chip cookies that are Sinful without the guilt. You begin to see the culture campaigning. One of the world's great intellectuals, Richard Dawkins, taking part in a campaign in Oxford buses, in which they put this sign up, There's probably no God, now stop worrying and enjoy your life. The destruction of faith so that in the end, they appear to be religious, but they lack its power. Now let me ask you a question. Is that a picture of the first century? Or have I just described for you a picture of 21st century America, how many of you would agree that's a picture of 21st century America today? That's the world in which we live, my friends. Paul wanted Timothy, and he wants us to be ready for it. Now the question is, what's the remedy? What's the remedy? Well, you have to come back next week to discover the remedy. (laughs) But understand this. These are the days in which you and I are living. Let's pray. Father, we give you thanks and praise for Paul. This is a hard word for us. We don't like to face reality. We have our own reality. Reality as we would like it to be as opposed to reality as it really is. But Paul wants us to be forewarned so that we can be forearmed, so that we can bear witness, so that we can bring a word of hope and encouragement to a world that is hopeless and discouraged. Grant us the grace, Lord, to take this word and swallow it whole and follow hard after you we may be lights in our generation. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen.